Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Well, everybody knows what it's like to be down in the dumps, right? Lots of reasons to be feeling blue, physical suffering, difficult relationships, and money troubles, and the sad, sad state of this world in turmoil, or a loss of some kind, right? And in this case, the loss of freedom for our Bible hero here in Matthew 11, John The Baptist, after many days languishing away in a dark dungeon there, John is down in the dumps, and he's got doubts about his faith. Man, John the Baptist, right? So after many days in a dark dungeon because of Herod, uh, John is wondering if Jesus is truly the one. And so, yeah, starting a new chapter, as I mentioned here in chapter 11 now, Jesus has finished up instructing his disciples about the outreach and evangelism ministry that he's given us to the preaching of the good news, which the world sometimes and mostly uh, perceives it as bad news. It's bad news if you want to remain in your sins and run your own life. And if that's the case, then the gospel and those who preach it is something you want to avoid at all costs. And so Jesus believes to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Yeah, I got it right. And he says, you're sheep among wolves. It's going to be a hostile world out there. I want you to be smart, shrewd, like serpents and harmless as doves. The pushback will even come in your own family. Now, here in chapter 11, Matthew wants to share some of the reactions to Jesus and his claims here, and they are, not surprisingly, uh, mostly unfavorable, and beginning with John the Baptist. Of all people, the prophet who God called to break a 400-year silence there in Israel. John the Baptist is grappling with fears and doubts. Despite his unique calling as a prophet filled with the spirit from before he was born, uh, wow, and despite in Matthew chapter 3, he's the one who testified, this is the Messiah, and now he's wondering about the truthfulness of that statement. Well, a lot has gone on since Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 11, where we find ourselves this morning. Matthew chapter 3, there was light streaming through the clouds and the dove descending and the heavens parting. 
And now the only light that John sees streaming through a tiny little crack in the walls of a dungeon there east of the Dead Sea there in a fortress called Macarius. And so John is in the doubt, the doubting castle as Pilgrim's Progress put it, and uh, he's having some struggles with his faith. Uh, these uh, these uh, dismal times for him is uh, they're messing with his faith. And so he's going to ask some questions here as we get underway. Let's begin at verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples on their missions trip, right? He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Oh, wow. Verse 4, Jesus replied, Go back, report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And P.S., blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. The word there is to stumble over or to be offended. And so we'll park there as we make our way through this account here. First point here, John has doubts about Jesus. And so it happens to the best of us, and, and John would be the best of us. Uh, Matthew 14 will tell us the graphic details and <clears throat> all the specifics about how he ended up in prison there. Just terrible person that he was, you know, like Jesus, his master, wanting all people to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. What, what a terrible criminal, right? Yeah, well, not. He spent his life devoted to God, yeah, he's an odd duck for sure, a loner, liked to camp out in the desert, he liked to live there. Yes, it's true, he dressed funny, and he ate bugs, so he is a little bit odd. He did use a little honey, he found that that helped uh, the <laughs> grasshoppers go down a little easier there. I guess they were locusts and wild honey. He yelled a lot, preaching kind of turn or burn messages. And so, yeah, three things, though, that was his undoing and like got him into that prison mentioned right there in your verses. Strike one was everyone was coming to him, the whole region. And so he was in the beginning, as it was in those days, everyone right at the beginning, massive popularity. And so uh, people from the region were all coming out, and the leaders were, of course, jealous and threatened by that strike one. And then strike two, he just pulled no punches when he called out the administration for their hypocrisy and corruption. You offspring of vipers... It's a good idea to flee from the coming wrath. You deserve it. Repent of your sins, he said. The axe is already at the foot of the tree. The tree without good fruit, like you guys, is going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. <laughs> that was strike two. 
right there. Okay, now the reference for that little part of his sermon is Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10, uh, in case you want that to put on your refrigerator. That was funny, I thought. Uh, Coming up there in chapter 14 is going to be, as I mentioned, all the the graphic details of how he ended up in prison. Uh, Spoiler alert, uh, Herod had gone to a birthday party for his brother and seduced his brother's wife away from him, committed adultery, dismissed his own wife, and then married his sister-in-law and swept it all under the rug and wanted to go on as if nothing happened. And John said, that was wrong. You should never have done that. Strike three. And so he's in the dungeon. Now that's how the world is. The The bad guys are let off free. They go free. And the good guys who speak the truth and do what's right, they're the ones incarcerated. Proverbs 17 and verse 15 says, the Lord hates that kind of thing when the guilty are acquitted and the the innocent are condemned. He says that's an abomination to God. A few nights ago, there were like 12 police uh, squad cars called in Brooklyn, somewhere in New York, uh, for some Jewish worshipers who wanted to pray to God. They ended up being cited and hassled and all of this, right? While the looters are, are, are going through and helping themselves to everything in Macy's. And so, yeah, there, uh, it didn't just start and end with John the Baptist. It goes on even today. And so back to John. He's in that dark, dank dungeon. He's been there suffering for two years, scholars tell us. He has some kind of very limited access to visitation. Uh, And so that word gets to John, right? That Jesus is on the move. And they're all, hey, dude, uh, Jesus is walking on the water. He fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He raised a little girl from the dead. And then a very odd response there in verse 3. After hearing that, he says, sends back to Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we expect another? How is it that John could ask such a question after hearing what he just heard? Well, not too difficult to understand. John, didn't you hear all the miraculous things Jesus was doing? And John would answer, yeah, I heard. He's opening blind eyes, and he's casting out demons, and he's setting captives free. But what about me? I'm still in chains. I've been wrongly arrested, falsely charged, and thrown into this pit of despair here. And we imagine the struggle with some Christians who would say, hey, I'm glad that God brought you, your person of dreams, but for me, I'm alone. Or I'm glad that God healed you of your cancer, but my chemo is on Tuesday if you're interested in coming and sitting with me. Or I'm glad that God blessed you financially, but as for me and my house, we're struggling. And so John, like many believers who suffer in, I guess, Pilgrim's Progress called the Doubting Castle, 
right? With the giant of despair there. Um, trying to make sense of it all. What we know about God and his love and what I know about the scriptures and the precious promises that are there to give us hope and what I see going on in my life in reality, the pain and disappointment. Uh, wow, where's the disconnect? And so there are, were only a few possibilities for John to choose from. It's either me, right? I must be doing something wrong. Unconfessed sin, a lack of faith, it's a user error, right? Or God is testing my faith, as is the case. Maybe God is accomplishing, and I love this saying, something he loves by using something he hates. He's using our suffering for his good redemptive work, and that's often the case. <clears throat> or maybe it's God's fault that I've got the wrong God, that God isn't really real, and maybe I should be looking for somebody else. And so, you know, these days when Christians want to find another way and they deconstruct their faith, that's the hip new cool way of falling away from God. And so they deconstruct their faith and they say, you know, and it cracks me up. They say, uh, it just wasn't working for me. Well, yeah, the biblical response, it never really was designed to work for you. You were designed to be working for him. And sometimes that means that he needs you to work and spend some time in a dark dungeon because he has reasons. He's got people in those prisons that need the light of the gospel. Paul the apostle went into a dungeon and said, now the, the whole Roman guard, the house of Caesar, has heard the gospel and they're learning about Christ. And in this he said, I can rejoice. And so... Your chains can be a cause of a hopeful rejoicing. Nobody likes the chains. Or they can lead to doubt and uh, despair, as was the case here. One day we'll understand why. I like that old hymn, Those shadows deepen and my heart bleeds. I will not question the way he leads. This side of heaven we know in part. I will not question a broken heart. We'll talk it over in the by and by. We'll talk it over, my Lord and I. I'll ask the reasons and he'll tell me why. We'll talk it over in the by and by. And yes, indeed. And I don't even think that we'll need to ask any questions. We will know as we are fully known. There, it'll all make sense. I like C.S. Lewis was the one who said the first two words in heaven are going to be, of course, Right? Clarity on the spot. So Jesus gives a sweet, a short, sweet, to the point response, two verses there. And essentially, short answer, yes, John, I'm the one. No worries, man. He says, number one, he gives them two uh, reasons to cling to. He says, number one, I'm doing what only God can do, man. All right, so go back and tell them the deaf uh, can hear the lame are walking, uh, lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor are being honored, and they're being uh, given the good news. All of this suffering alleviated, and the miracles are attesting to the validity of my claims. And number two, John, don't trip. That's exactly what it means. Don't get tripped up about having preconceived notions about how your life was supposed to go. 
and therefore get offended or stumble or trip on account of me and my purposes in your heart and life. Yeah, the disciples are running around free and you're locked up, right? You're devoted and, and now it just seems like uh, as a result of your devotion to God, you have to suffer. It doesn't make sense, but he says, John, I'm the Lord. Blessed are those who don't let themselves be derailed by their preconceived inadequate understandings of who I am and what I came to do. And so we need to take that to heart for sure. Moving on, verse 7 and following. As John's disciples were leaving, taking that answer back to John, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, that's right. And more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. So we go, note takers, from John has doubts about Jesus to Jesus has praise for John. And this is so touching to me. It always gets me. You know, that's how God is. We're at our lowest, we're at our worst, and he's at his best. You know, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things with us. And, and just giving us the benefit of the doubt, right? And so the crowd is cooling toward, that. They're, they're cooling in how they feel about John and Jesus. And so he has to build them up and reassure, reassure the audience that John isn't stumbling uh, too far here. He's going to be back on track. And so time to sing his praises when he's at the bottom, Right? And so he's going to give two rhetorical questions there. Uh, what did you go out to see, the first one? A reed swaying in the wind. And so he's saying here in the first part of question number one, you went out into the desert, didn't you? All of Judea, most of the region, went out and made that arduous trek into the Judean wilderness. At great cost to themselves, high temperatures. It was no picnic to do uh, such a thing back in ancient times. And so uh, there were uh, really sparse accommodations. How about the food? How about the water? The rugged terrain, wild animals, snakes, scorpions, <laughs> the time invested for such a thing. But most of Israel went out there. Why? So Jesus is drawing out of them the conclusion that this man was truly the real deal, a prophet of God and more than that. So he wants to draw it out by the rhetorical questions. Instead of him laying it out, just singing his praises, he's going to put it in such a way that they have to come to the conclusion of the truth itself. And so he says, think back. John is a man of substance. It was worth the effort to go out to hear him because something wonderful was happening out there, something divine, something great. 
like he was a great man. And so, yeah, because he was anything other than a reed swaying in the wind. So Jesus is saying, uh, did you go out to look for a, a weak little stalk of something with a puff of wind and it goes falling over, vacillating, telling you one thing today, another thing tomorrow, and talking out of two sides of his mouth and um, all of this kind of vacillating back and forth, telling you what you want to hear. He's saying, was he a wimpy, spineless, kind of smooth-talking faker? No, you've got rabbis and Pharisees and Sadducees to tell you uh, uh, what you want to hear. He wasn't fragile and weak. This is the point. No, he was just the opposite. Powerful, a man of substance, a man of life, God's life and truth. And so strong, upright, courageous. That's John, a straight talker. And you're going to get the truth, love him or hate him. And so he's the real deal. And then the second question, uh, not a man in soft clothing, the word means soft. Meaning there in verse 8, did you guys go looking for someone dressed in delicate, and the word means effeminate, weak clothing? In other words, luxurious garments, fancy threads, silky silks and satins. Skinny jeans and a man bun, I don't know, something like that. Uh, Jesus is saying, you're going to get all the pretty faces in the palaces and where you'll hear that kind of message, that pretty drivel, that insipid, flavorless, lifeless, fine-sounding arguments that damn men's souls. He says, that's not what you got out in the wilderness because he was as rugged and upright on the inside as he was on the outside. The outside was anything but soft. Camel hair, not soft. Leather belt, not soft. And inside his heart was the same kind of man, a pillar of courage and truth and integrity, unwavering message he was a prophet, verse 9. Get right with God, repent and trust his Messiah, or see your life destroyed. That's a prophet. And then he says, more than a prophet, wasn't he? Because John is the fulfillment of the prophet's prophecy. So not only is he a prophet, but he's the fulfillment of prophecy himself. Not just of Malachi 3 and verse 1, but Isaiah talking about make straight paths for the Lord. And Jesus is going to say he's the one. And so, so much more than just a prophet, he's famous, right? This is him, the Malachi 3, 1, the guy who goes before the Lord here. And so, here comes a surprise twist with the greatness uh, afforded John the Baptist, we find out that even the least significant Christian is greater than he. Check this out. So we continue reading now, verses 11 through 15. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. How would you like to hear that in your, the moment of defeat, where dark has you and you're all... Uh, doubts and fears. He says, there's nobody greater than John. Yet, 
he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 12. Now, this verse is hard in the Greek with the grammar, and so you get a couple ways to go with that, and, and we'll do our best. Verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he's the Elijah who was to come, as Isaiah prophesied. If you have ears, you should use them. All right, so that's verse 15. All right, so a quicker point now, just really the New uh, Testament believer has a great privilege indeed that comes with a great challenge. And so here, as I said, the surprising twist, right, is, is that we are very blessed to be born when we were born on uh, the, this side of the cross in what we call the new covenant. So here's what he says. Among human beings, there's no one greater in the past, and he's talking right then in the moment, than John the Baptist, right? Because he got the closest to Jesus, the Son of God, God in a human body. John got the closest, but the, the least significant believer gets closer than John. Therefore, we are greater than John. This is what Jesus is saying. And how, why is that? Well, we enjoy a greater covenant. John lived under a covenant that said, do this or die. We live under a covenant that says, trust me and live. We have a greater covenant, a greater relationship with God, a regenerated heart. The Holy Spirit fills us and raises us to new life. Uh, the Old Testament saints, as we call them, they had a different relationship with the Holy Spirit. He was with them. But with the church, he's in us and our spirit joined to him. And there's a greater sacrifice that we enjoy. So we are greater in this uh, regard. The livestock the brought in schlepping some uh, lamb. Every time you sin, you had to bring an offering and confess your sins onto that animal. And, and the writer to the Hebrews says, the blood of, of bulls and goats can't take away your sins. It's a picture. Can't transform you. You have to keep bringing in the animals because you're going to keep on sinning. You're not going to be transformed. But our God in Hebrews chapter 10, it says that by one sacrifice, he is perfected forever those who are being made holy. And so it's a better sacrifice indeed and a greater access and security that we have than John did, great as he was, because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know how King David would pray, God, where are you? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's impossible for us. It's impossible. You've been joined and wedded your spirit to his, that you are united as one with the Lord. That is something that Jesus says makes us greater than John the Baptist, as great as he was. And so with the greater perks come the greater challenge. And now we're at that verse 12. That can go several different ways. But here's the greatest 
consensus over the years. So your verse says the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing since John. Here's what that means. From the dawn of the new covenant with John, the forerunner of the Messiah, John and Jesus are on the scene. The kingdom of God has broken into human history in an aggressive and powerful way. Step out of the way. Get on the freight train or step out of its way. This is what he's saying. The power of God, the Holy Spirit, myriad and myriads of angels uh, in the spiritual realms. The virgin birth has happened. God has entered the womb of a virgin and has become the God-man living and breathing and making his home among us. And so uh, and the kingdom of heaven is advancing from John and Jesus. Uh, it started there advancing right past King Herod's uh, attempt to execute the baby Jesus. It advances past Satan's uh, attempt to tempt Jesus there in Matthew chapter 4. And here's the part, here's what he's saying. In short, he's saying God's work, the gospel, is going to plow through human history in 30 years. 30 years already. Most of the Roman Empire will have been evangelized. This is his point. Ladies and gentlemen, you see John and you see me standing here. Watch out. And there's a lot of advancing through a lot of hostility. But this gospel is going to knock over every obstacle. It's going to cross every boundary. It's going to break every fetter. It's going to defy any dictator. You try to snuff it out, you'll be snuffed out. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell represented the power, the power of the devil himself will not prevail, he's saying, because the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing since John. And it's going to do that until God thinks that everybody who needs to hear has heard. And so the second half of that verse is kind of fun. He's saying, now and now is the time for courageous souls, forceful people to take hold of it. So here's what he's saying. Like the sign at the amusement park that says, caution, this ride goes fast, very fast. It will throw you from side to side. You will be turned upside down and inside out. Be warned or don't get on. The kingdom of heaven is not for the faint of heart. That's what he's saying. In a few short months, He's going to be hanging nailed to a cross and, and in a few years they're all going to be dead, killed. Their heads chopped off. So he's just saying, just so you know, the kingdom of God is here and watch out because it's coming through. And right now, the roller coaster is pulled up with the bars open and he's saying, you want to go for a ride? Get in and buckle up. We're going for a ride. And then he goes on further. And uh, verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces, the playgrounds for them. And they're calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge is a funeral song. 
you didn't mourn. Or John came neither eating or drinking. And they said, he's got a demon. The son of man, Jesus, myself, he's saying, came eating and drinking. And they said, he's a glutton and a drunkard. And he hangs out with a bunch of losers, tax collectors and sinners. Ooh, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. All right, let's talk about this. Time to finish up with the end of excuses for the generation, get this, that got to see with their eyes and handle with their hands the word of life. God in a human body, they're this close to him. That's an amazing thing to see what they saw and to hear what they heard and then to turn it down. Jesus is just going to give a little <laughs> wonderful comparison here, a metaphor, a parable almost, of, of to describe God's effort to get through to them and their strange reception. And so he's going to say the problem of the rejection is user error. That's not God's fault. You almost hear him with a fatherly tone exasperated a little bit and, and just kind of saying, we tried everything from A to Z and everything in between and nothing worked for you people, you know? And so he's saying, your reaction to the crowd there is so infantile and childish and hypocritical and illogical. He says, let me tell you what it's like. Well, really, he's saying, the gospel came and was introduced with its two dual natures. It has two natures, doesn't it? A stern side, as Romans 11 tells us, keep in mind the two aspects and character qualities of God, the sternness of God and the kindness of God, the lion and the lamb. We have songs about this, don't we? And he says it's a healthy balance to have. And so John and Jesus represent that, but neither approach worked for them. And so Jesus is going to be forced into the conclusion that he makes here. Like kids in a marketplace on the playground, and they're playing back and forth, and one group's saying to somebody else, hey, you want to play with us? Uh, well, you want to play wedding? And they say, nah. Okay, you want to play funeral? Nah. Okay, well, truth be told then, it's that you just don't want to play with us because you don't like us. It doesn't matter what we said. Funeral, wedding, and everything in between. The answer is nah. Why? That's not about the game we're asking you to play. It's about you don't want to play with us. John and Jesus. So he says, yeah, we tried the wedding flute, which means let's sing. You know, let's sing I Will Be Here by Stephen Curtis Chapman. All right, you want to play? You want to sing it? Let's pretend somebody's walking down the aisle and all of that. It speaks of Jesus' ministry. Water to wine at a wedding. <laughs> Feast, no fasting. It's the time of favor with Jesus, right? You know, the king's son is getting married and everybody's invited, and everybody can come free of charge, even the bad guys, good guys, bad guys. He says, invite the good guys and the bad guys. That's amazing. The prostitutes get a free pass. The rip-off rip artists 
The poor are honored in all of this. And so he says, well, the, the, the cry goes out, hey, let's dance. It's a wedding. Let's sing the song of forgiveness and be happy. And you guys say, we'll sit this one out. Hmm. Okay. Well, then we tried the funeral thing. Since maybe, you know, you're looking at that and say, you guys are too silly. You know, we're serious folks. Okay, let's try that approach. We'll bring out the bagpipes, the Scottish ones, where you hear that familiar tune of Amazing Grace on bagpipes, and you know that somebody is missing from the dinner uh, table. A seat is empty there. Sadly, it's a funeral dirge, right? And so he says, we brought in the professional mourners, you know, John the Baptist, who's better for a grim message than he. A turn or burn, produce fruit, or be chopped down and hurled it to the fire. No parties. He has no time for parties. No feasting. Lots of fasting and tears and pious groaning and disciplines and water and grasshoppers with a dab of honey. You know, if he heard that we want a mattress to sleep on, he'd say, what kind of Christians are you? A mattress? What a... <laughs> Yeah, what wimps, man. So come to the funeral? No, that's just too sad. Come to the wedding? No, such frivolity, right? And so we're getting the feeling that it might be us because you've been calling us a bunch of names and it's gotten back to us, Jesus says, right in front of the crowd. He says, you don't like us, do you? You just don't want to have anything to do with us. Because we know what you're calling us behind our backs. You're calling John demon-possessed. And you're calling me a drunk and a glutton. Who laughs too much and sings too much and dances too much. What kind of Messiah is that? Well, have you guys in the last verse that we're looking at, verse 19. You guys ever hear the saying, the truth always comes out in the end? That's kind of what his proverb means. In other words, you guys think John has lost his marbles and you think I'm the party guy. But when you see us in heaven, seated on thrones, reigning and ruling, you'll know the truth. And then you'll know who was wise and who was not. It's the end of the thing that tells you if the actions were wise or not. Right, because you could see somebody doing something and say, that doesn't look very smart. Well, you're going to find out. By the end of the thing, you'll find out, oh, oh, that was actually, it didn't look smart, but it actually was the right thing to do. It works both ways, doesn't it? And that's what the proverb there means. Wait and see the outcome, and then you'll know who was wise and who was not. And so there you have it. We have four takeaways. Number one, don't trip. For your dungeon moments and mine, it creates a lot of doubts and questioning, a little bit of confusion. Jesus says, remember, I've proven myself through my miracles and my resurrection from the dead and myself in your life, if you think about it. And you will be blessed if you don't get tripped up in your faith by trying to figure out what I'm doing and it doesn't go your way, when you want it, how you want it, all of that. Don't trip. Number two, 
When we're at our worst, God is at his best, doling out the grace, lavishing out mercy. And as I said, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. My friend, you have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. When you're down and out, he's rooting for you. He sees the best. As you've been washed over in his own blood, he sees no fault in you. Number three, the kingdom of God is truly not for the faint of heart. Get on that ride. Buckle up and rest in his ability to take you all the way there. Even when it turns upside down, you're in his safe hold. And so finally, like Jesus and John, the world thinks we're crazy. They don't want to play with us. But any moment when the trumpet sounds and we are called upward, we'll see who was wise and who was not. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that in due time, all of our lives will be vindicated. It's our heritage from you, God. We stand glorified with you in heaven. Oh, everybody will understand why we live the way we lived. God, so many good things to remember here. We all have fears and doubts. But thankfully, God, your Holy Spirit helps us through those times. Father, we pray that you would take these truths and seal them in our hearts and etch them on our souls that they be with us in our time of need. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org. 